0: Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Okay, so each week we filled in the blank with a different person, our friends, our family, spouse, parents, uh, kids. Uh, different people, and this week, this message is going to apply really to whomever you want it to apply to. And so, I didn't know what to fill in the blank with, so um, I, I put barista. And uh, probably not going to apply this message to the person who prepares your coffee. But how many of you, you've got your cup of coffee with you in church today? How many of you could not make it through a Rockbrook Church worship service without a <laughs> cup of coffee? Come on, it's, not, it's all right. It's all right. This is a no shame zone, or whatever. This is. A, I remember um, several years ago when we had the coffee in the back of the worship center, there was uh, two pots of caffeinated decaf and the caffeinated had like an out of order sign on it or someone put like it's not working and there were like eight people just standing around it with an empty cup just staring at it, <laughs> like hoping God would do like the miracle at the wedding. Can he turn, can he turn decaf into calf? Like, like, <laughs> So uh, I'm just thinking about the relationships in our, our lives, and uh, one that I'm thinking about this weekend, this Sunday, is the parent uh, or the student-teacher relationship, because last week was the end of, last week was spring break for Belton and Raypec. so uh, you guys are back to school, many, many of you work in schools and teach and students. And uh, you're going back for the final leg, the fourth and final leg of the school year, everybody. Are you excited? Yes, yes. So I looked up some memes that I thought were funny. Um, Let's start from the teacher perspective. This is a teacher who says, who says teaching is stressful? I'm 39 and I feel great. (laughs) Or teachers be like, I'm just going to wait till it's quiet. Wait a long time. My face after I just finished giving directions and a student asked me what to do. Or my face when a student says something funny, but I'm a teacher, so I try to keep my composure. So that's the teacher perspective. How about from the student perspective? Shout out to old people for graduating high school without Google. I don't know how you did it. Or when the teacher is watching you during a test and you pretend that you're at least trying to think. (laughs) And last one, I forgot to see if there was any homework over the break and at this point I'm just too afraid to check. So, story of my life. But whether it's the student, uh, teacher, relationship, whether it's the relationship with a coworker, or a brother-in-law, or a spouse, or an ex-husband, an ex-wife... What causes the conflict in our lives? I just want to uh, kind of go back in this last week of this relationship series, kind of go back to square one. Now let's just talk about what causes the conflicts in our lives. There's four common causes of conflict, things that stir up conflict between us and other people. And the first one, if you're taking notes, is poor communication. As I said last week, most conflict flows from miscommunication or misunderstanding. Conflict starts with something seemingly small and insignificant. Like you'd be almost, you're just embarrassed to even say what what started this fight. But because someone shuts down or doesn't communicate, or because someone erupts or is forceful, the conflict grows. And this was really last week's whole message. The second common cause of conflict is unfulfilled expectations. In fact, all anger begins right there. Every time you have ever gotten angry in your entire life was because of an unfulfilled expectation, because you had an expectation that you would be treated a certain way, or that you had an expectation that your kid would do something the first time you ask them, or you had an expectation that this highway would be free of cars, or you had an expectation that your house would be a place of peace and quiet, and when those expectations aren't met, we get mad the third common cause of conflict is despising differences so we think if everything were just like or we think if everyone were just like us everything would be great but the reality is the more different you are the better team you make so like if you're watching March Madness right now, the teams that are doing really well are the teams that are the most diverse. It's not, not a bunch of guys that can all play the outside or all play the inside. There's a diversity on the team, and they all come together and are united as one. They celebrate the diversity, celebrate the differences, and come together and unite. If everyone were just like you, well, hello, there's lots of problems you and I don't know how to solve. Because we all think differently. We need each other. But what can happen is we start, instead of valuing or celebrating those differences and uniting them together, we start despising the differences between us and it leads to conflict. Uh, But here's the last cause of conflict. And really, this one's all you need. Like if we were to only put one up there, this would be the one. We all have, number four, a sin nature. People are fallen. Why do we expect people to act like they're not a fallen race? We're all sinners. Let's go to God's word. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21, the Apostle Paul writing, he says, I find this law at work. So there's this principle at work in, in my life. There's this law that I'm just subject to in my life. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. So, meaning, in my heart, in my mind, I know there's a God. I believe there's a God, I love God, and I want to honor Him with my life. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So I've got this this one part of me that wants to honor God, desires to honor God, convicts me when I don't honor God, but I've got this other part of me that wants to do what is wrong. It's like part of me is free and part of me is still a prisoner to sin. Does anybody ever feel that way? Yeah. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So my spirit is alive, and it longs to be with God, and it longs to honor God, but my flesh is still a prisoner to sin, which is why we've got to feed the spirit and starve the flesh. This is why Scripture says, ultimately, you've got to crucify the flesh. But because we're in this fallen world, we all fall short of, of this perfect standard set by God. God is perfect in every way. And we fall short of Him, and it causes conflict in our life. This being prisoner to this sin nature causes conflicts between us. And much of what we talked about in this series works best when you have two people who both know this. So you got two people in conflict, or you got a family that's in conflict, or a group of people in conflict that it works best when they all know that there's a fallen world and a sinful flesh and an enemy that's trying to sabotage their relationship. And they have a goal to be united and to work through that. And when you've got two people who know and understand that and are united together to fighting for their relationship, they can overcome anything, anything. But what about when you're in relationship with someone who they only have one law at work in them? They're just a slave to sin. They're just led by their flesh. What do you do when you're in conflict with someone who isn't feeding the spirit at all? They're just led by the flesh and they've turned from God and they're no longer seeking peace with God and they're no longer seeking peace with you. And that's really what I want to talk about today. What do you do when a spouse isn't faithful and they don't care to be? What do you do when... You have someone who's not committed to the relationship anymore. The coworker, or the friend or the family member who they're not repenting, they're not wanting to fight for the relationship. And the Bible talks a lot about this. I noticed recently reading through First and 2 Timothy, it's the Apostle Paul and he's writing to Timothy, I just started noticing that he's often bringing up people who have turned from the truth, people that... He knows and we're with him that that Timothy would have known that they're false teaching now. They don't believe anymore. They've turned from the truth. They've abandoned the mission. And I just started reading those books through that lens. And it was comforting to see these two guys working out the very same thing many of us are struggling with. People who are ignoring truth, ignoring wisdom, ignoring understanding. They're distorting the truth. They're turning from it altogether. And it's impacting the people around them, and it's impacting them. And Paul offers these examples. He names names of people Timothy would have known. He offers personal examples of those who have abandoned him, turned from him. And and it's a warning that it's going to happen in our lives. There are going to be people in our life who they're not going to accept sound teaching. They're going to turn from the truth. And they're going to disappear at the first sign of trouble. And so maybe you want to read through First and Second Timothy just through that lens, because I had about seven or eight observations as I read it. But today I'm just going to give you a few of them. And uh, after I wrote these up, I realized I was onto something because they all start with R. So that's a good thing. A pirate's second favorite letter. So we're good. If you don't know that joke, you can look it up on your own time. But when those have turned from the truth, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do when those people in your life that they have turned? from the truth. Well, number one, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to remember those who are faithful. Yes, there are those who are disloyal, but are there many that have remained faithful? You see this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul is talking about those who have deserted him and abandoned him. Look at it with me, starting in verse 15. As you know, everyone from the province of Asia. Now, I'm not sure, but I think that's a lot of people. I mean, you just hear his his cry here, his frustration. Everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me, and then he names some names of people Timothy would have known. And it's like, even even these people that we would you wouldn't think it. Like Timothy, we didn't see this one coming. I didn't expect this of all the people to desert me. I didn't think it'd be these people even if i jealous and hermogenes but may the lord show special kindness to onasiphorus and his family because he often visited and encouraged me he was never ashamed of me because i was in chains so immediately after saying that everyone had deserted him paul offers a quick insight into the faithfulness of one person one person that had been supportive in the past and most recently when this person arrived in rome searched and searched and searched until he found Paul in prison so he could minister to him. And Paul commends this brother to Timothy and, and despite Paul's feeling this way, you can see in this letter that he even names other people that he's sending these greetings. of, Hey, I also send greetings from all these other people, Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. So he wasn't really all alone. He had just gone through a season, a period where he felt that way because many many people had abandoned him and this is just a principle in life that we've got to learn and remember that when we want to focus on who's not here we've got to remember and celebrate who's still here who's still faithful let's just use a couple examples there's some people who they're not here today like people who are normally in this service they're not here for whatever reason And we could all sit around and count who's not here. Or we could unite with one voice, celebrate the faithful, unite with the faithful, sing our guts out to our Lord and Savior who rescued us from sin, who's worthy and has all the honor, all the power, all the glory. We can learn from his word and we can move forward with the mission today. There's going to be some people this week who they don't show up to your small group or that they said they were going to come serve, and they don't come serve. There's going to be people who, man, they're not going to pull their weight on, on the group project. And, and they're not going to change their attitude at, at work. And we could count who's not there. We could focus on who's not being faithful. Or we could celebrate and commend those who are faithful. But those are just examples. I don't want to weaken what Paul is speaking here, because these are, he's talking about people who have abandoned him, deserted him. They weren't. You're going to have those people in your life, too. They're not faithful to the vow they took. They're not keeping a promise they said they'd keep. They're not living up to a covenant they signed. And they're people, they've turned from your friendship. They've turned from God. They've turned from the truth. And what you see Paul doing here is even though there are those who are turning from the truth, he's remembering, celebrating, and commending the faithful. That not everyone's bowed their knee to Baal. Not everyone's turned from the truth. And do you thank God for the faithful few, or do you moan over the disloyal? And it's important to thank God for those who have remained faithful to the gospel, faithful to friendship, even when times are hard. Paul was learning this lesson as he wrote what I believe is an exaggeration, that everyone had deserted him and that nobody was with him. He says, but you know what? I'm going to move with the movers. We got a mission to fulfill. Timothy, many of us, many have abandoned us, but we got a job to do. we got a gospel to spread. And not everyone has failed. Not every, and even when we feel like a Christian Lone Ranger who's lost all his tontos, we need to remember that there are still those who are supporting us, still those who believe the truth, and still those who are encouraging. So we've got to remember the faithful. Number two, what do you do with people who've turned from the truth? Well, you've got to refuse to play their game. Difficult people who've turned from the truth, they love to argue and debate, don't they? And if you fall for it, you're just going to start thinking, man, if I could just logically explain to them like if they, could just, if they could just let me finish a few sentences and get this thought out there and make it clear and if I could present the facts and the logical case for how destructive their behavior is against them and the people around them and if I could just logically explain what is going on then they would understand. But people who have turned from the truth did not come to their position through reason. People who turn from the truth didn't use facts to get there. They got into that behavior from serving their sin nature, not logic. And while they can pretend they're really smart, and they can veil it in all this intelligence, the people who really accept, love, and know the truth know that that person is off in the woods, and they did not get into the woods based on following logic and facts and truth. They got there out of emotion. They got there from sin. And when you try to show them that they're wrong, they just get mad at you. And so you've got to refuse to play their game. 2 Timothy, again, verse 23, chapter 2. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. They're a slave to sin. They're a slave to their flesh. They're being held captive by the devil. Now, here, he's talking about those who have turned from the truth. So, if you're in conflict with a friend or family member who, come on, they haven't turned from the truth, you two just disagree. You're not coming to the same understanding. You, know, well, you need to work that out and reconcile. But then there are those who, they're opponents, and they start foolish and stupid arguments, and they oppose the truth. And Paul's saying, save your, br- save your breath, don't play games, don't waste your time. And this is important because people who have turned from the truth, they use conflict to get your attention. We all have this inner deep need for approval and when we can't get approval, we settle for attention. And we see, we see that need expressed in bizarre behavior and bizarre lifestyles that they can't get the approval they so desperately need so they get, they'll settle for the attention that they can get. Don't get hooked. Don't play their game. Proverbs 26.4 says, Don't answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you will become as foolish as they are. And then what's interesting is the very next verse says the very opposite thing. Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, or they will become wise in their own estimation. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Why, Why this contradiction in advice? Because it's context-sensitive. It really depends on the situation and the person. And maturity is when you can really discern whether or not to answer the fool. And we've got to rely on the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us discern when to answer, when it's going to be helpful, or when it's just a foolish, stupid argument. And you see, Jesus, He, w- he would not take the bait on these things. He would not get into an argument that was headed, no- that was headed nowhere. And so either way, if God leads you to answer or don't answer, don't play their game. Don't be manipulated. Don't be controlled. Don't let them set your agenda. Too many people are letting foolish, the foolish people set the agenda for their life. Don't let fools set the emotion of your life. Don't let fools set the agenda and the mission of your life. So if you're going to refuse to play their game, if you're going to remember the faithful, well, then what do you do with People who have turned from the truth. What do you do with them? And that's number three. You've got to release them. You've got to release them to God. Some people you cannot fix. You've got to give them to God. You love them. You care about them deeply. But if you start arguing with them, you're actually going to become an obstacle to them coming back to God. And so you've got to release them to God. Let's look at some words from Jesus here on how to release those who have turned from the truth uh, to God, And, and He's speaking in the most extreme way. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? So Jesus is introducing that there is a reward at stake here. And that if you only love those who love you, anyone can do that. There's no reward in that. So Everybody does that. Even the tax collectors are doing that, who are the most corrupt people at that time. He says even the most corrupt, the bottom of the barrel, the people that are, it's like they have no conscience, even they can love those who love them. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So even the people who are just subject to the law of sin, they're just following their flesh, even, that, even though they'll accept the people who accept them. Love your enemies. Pray for the persecuted. Well, there's a reward in that, because nobody does that. But anybody can love and accept the people who love and accept them. Verse 48, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, which Christ is showing us here by this example and many others, that it's just impossible to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. And that's why Jesus would have to take his perfect life to the cross as a perfect sacrifice and do the work of salvation and perfection for us. But he shows us that the godly response here, the Christ like response, is to love your enemies, pray for them, to pray for those who have turned from the truth. When I pray for people, I see them differently. Because what I want to do is what we all want to do I want to run my mouth. I want to get out of that meeting and want to text somebody or call somebody and tell them what they're doing and what they did and get them on my side. We want to get people on our team. We want to get more people on our side to make us feel better about our position in the argument so they can see that, that they're wrong. But when I pray for them, I see them differently. And when I pray for them, I see the problem differently and I respond more righteously. And if you've ever wondered why many people, many, many, many people refused to follow Jesus during His earthly ministry, you have to look no further than verse 44. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And in our day, we have have watered down the term enemy to where this has no shock value anymore. Because we even have the term frenemy It's like, you know, they're like my friend, but they have ulterior motives, and they're kind of my rival. When Jesus is speaking to is Jews who've lived their life with enemies from slavery in Egypt to now living in this land that's occupied by the Roman Empire, who's crucifying and doing all these other horrible things. They have real enemies, and it's like telling them To love and pray for their enemies is like telling a Christian in Iraq to love and to pray for ISIS. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. When Jesus gave this command to love and pray for our enemies, he knew it would one day require praying for Islamic extremists like ISIS and Al Qaeda who are murdering his bride, who are destroying family members. How do you do that? I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road of the Christian life. If you have ever gotten on your knees and poured out your heart to God in prayer for the people who have turned from the truth, for people who have ruined your life, for the people who are going to wake up tomorrow and chant death to your nationality and death to you, you know there would have to be a reward in it. Because nobody does that. And it's not easy to do. So how do we do it? How do we do it? I want to give you three specific ways to pray for those who are engaged in persecuting Christians or for those who have turned from the truth and are ruining your life. Number one, we've got to pray for their conversion. Pray that they'll come back to God. Now, let me give you within this two reasons we don't pray for the conversion of our enemies, whether they be terrorists, whether they be those in our life who have abandoned us and are trying to ruin our life. The first reason is that we believe it's absurd to think they'll become Christians. Like, it seems like a useless plea. And you'll say, Ryland, you don't know my brother-in-law. Or you say, Rylan, I was in the military. I've been over there. You don't know what's going on. It's a useless plea. The probability of them giving their life to Christ is zero. And we forget that God can do for them what he did for us. And he can provide the gift of grace that they might be saved. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And the same grace that can save them, that saved you, can save them. But we forget, we think that we were somehow more deserving of this gift than other people. 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And I just imagine that before Paul's conversion, there was someone that heard this command from Jesus to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. They heard that command or they heard of that command and they saw the apostle Paul, but when he was Saul, he was persecuting Christians and they took this command seriously and they were praying for Paul to convert and be saved. And now this person, this man, this woman gets to be in on one of the greatest conversion stories in the history of mankind. Can you imagine the reward in that? Can you imagine the reward in praying for Paul to convert? Even if he never did. The discipline that would take, the heart that that would take, the heart for God that would take. But we look at the situation realistically and tell ourselves, well, the probability of a genuine conversion is close to zero. But according to our faith, it will be done. And if we truly love our enemy, how could we not petition God on on their behalf? So the, the first reason we don't pray for their conversion is we think it's absurd. But another reason we don't pray for their conversion is we are afraid they may actually convert. Like they might spend all this time trying to ruin my life. All this time, turn from the truth and this destructive behavior be poured out on everyone around them. And then what? They just convert, they repent, and they're saved, and they're off the hook. And inside all of us is just a little bit of Jonah with the Ninevites who didn't want to go because he knew, God, I know you're a God of compassion. I know you're a God of mercy. I know you're a God who's slow to anger, and I knew you were going to save them. I knew you were going to let them off the hook. But it's precisely because God is gracious and compassionate that we ought to pray for the conversion of our enemies. How can we do anything else? Less. For a God who gifted us with grace and saved us. The second way we can pray for our enemies is to pray that the evil they do may be restrained. And it, it, it is, it's to their benefit and ours that they prevented, be prevented from committing more evil. For those who have hardened their heart against God, it would be better if their life was shortened than for them to continue to persecute God's children. So the protection of the innocent people, it requires human intervention. It requires human governments to step in and take action. But we've got to remember that if death is the final resort to stop this, to stop from harming innocent people and, and harming innocent children. While that may be the only effective way to restrain their actions, we're not to rejoice in their suffering. Proverbs twenty four seventeen says, Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. So we're going to pray. We're going to pray for their conversion. We're going to pray that the evil actions may be restrained. And number three, we're going to pray that they will receive divine justice. Now, in, in the order of your prayers, this is number three. But we want this to be number one, right? <laughs> this isn't the first thing you pray. But you get there because God is a God of justice. And thank God for the divine justice of our holy God. And I'll just tell you, it, especially in, in these weeks ramping up to Easter, you're going to hear a lot and see a lot and read a lot from people who they're going to go through Scripture from the Old Testament or prophecies about the things to come, and they're going to point out these, these horrible things God did to people, these wars that He started, these things that, that He's done or is going to do. And how, how could you worship a God like that? That God's not good. And they're going to conveniently leave out all the events preceding those actions. They're going to conveniently leave out all the evil that the other person was doing they're going to conveniently leave out the warning after warning after warning God gave for them to be stopped and out of compassion and out of love he restrained the evil that was being poured out on innocent people but in asking that divine justice be done we've got to guard our motives And we've got to leave vengeance to God. As Paul writes in Romans 12, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. So don't, if you retaliate, well, you've taken the opportunity away. You did it. If you let God do it, he's going to take better care of it than you would anyway. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, then he quotes a very useful proverb, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, meaning that he'll be put to shame. You respond like this, like that's the best comeback. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do you plan to overcome the evil in the world, the evil in your relationships? How do you plan to respond to the people who have turned from the truth in your life and are trying to ruin your life? And for those who will neither turn to God nor turn away from doing evil, Let's be thankful enough for the grace of God that saved us that even our enemies can receive it too. I think that's a gauge. I think that's just a gauge in our life to know how thankful we are for the grace of God. We even want our enemies to receive it. I think it's a gauge for knowing how well we know This grace is really a gift. That even our enemies could receive it. Let's pray. Well, God, you know, you know the people in our life who have abandoned us, who have hurt us, who have deserted us. They've turned away from the truth. They're harming themselves. They're harming the others, other people around them. God, would you remind us today who's still there, who's who's been faithful. And God, we need divine wisdom when it comes to responding to uh, the fools in this world. We need your spirit guiding us and leading us when to answer, when to stay out of it. And God, the best we know how right now we release those who have turned from the truth to you. Use us as you wish. God, please save them. Please restrain them. Your will be done, Lord. God, thank you for the grace in our lives. We're just reminded today, it is a gift. It's a gift from a God who holds all power over darkness and all power over the enemy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today.